morning. Good morning. I like my new walk-up music. We have some new walk-up music for Easter. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. I am so, let's see, I can't use excited. I'm jazzed. I'm pumped. I'm geeked. I'm ready to go for our Easter series. I am so excited. Pastor Gabe said, our little series. I know, I can't help but use the word excited. But she used the word, our little series. And I thought, well, it's going to be five weeks. But I guess when you see how we're going to be in Job for, you know, eight months. Yeah, it is kind of a little little quick series, a little diversion, right? Um, but welcome. If you're out there online, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I want to encourage everybody as we, as we kick off this, this Easter season and preparing our hearts, invite somebody to church. Invite somebody to come and join. Not just check it out online. Come and be a part of the fellowship, what we do here. The world is opening up again. The state's opening up again. Everything is opening up. New life, springtime, it's all here. And that's, that's why I just can't contain my jazzedness. <laughs> is that a word? It's going to be hard, but I'm tr- going to try and break myself of that. Um, but, gosh, this, this message especially in this series... The Lord gave me the idea for this series and basically just gave me a scripture. And the scripture is from 2 Corinthians. It's a light out of the darkness. I'm going to talk more about that scripture in a little bit. But it started me thinking about how we think about Easter, how traditionally churches have and most people have thought about Easter. And Easter, make no mistake, it is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But there are aspects of that that I think we don't look at enough. And that's kind of what I feel like the Lord gave me. So that's, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to take the idea that Jesus is the light of the world. And we're going to look at how that pertains to Easter and how that should be an element of what we celebrate. So we're going to break it kind of into, into we've got five weeks uh, going up to Easter. We're going to break it apart into different pieces. This message is... is a world of darkness desperately in need of light. And that's how that fit thousands of years ago, and it fits today, doesn't it? Yeah. We look at things, the, the world, there's so much darkness and has been so much darkness. We see things just being, people constantly being of, offended by a number of different things, right? Dr. Seuss, Mr. Potato Head. Horribly offensive images, right? But that's where our world wants to go. And here's what that speaks to me, though, is is that people have been being offended by things since the very beginning of time. And there's nothing... I'm trying to figure out how to put this into a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. Jesus Christ has led the world in offending people for thousands of years. The gospel of Jesus is offensive to those who choose to live in the darkness. And whether you knowingly choose it or you just, by circumstance, you have chosen that or maybe you just haven't been brought into the light yet, you're going to find that light of Jesus to be offensive to you. So that's what I want to talk about here today. So many people think of Jesus as just, uh, Jesus, of Easter as just another religious day. Okay? A lot of the world just thinks of it as just a religious 
celebration or ceremony. Even a lot of Christians just think about it as a day. Not the time frame before and after, which are significant as well. In fact, um, when I was growing up, Easter meant, here's what Easter meant to me. Candy, Easter eggs, Easter bunny, some horribly scary looking bunny suit running around that frankly just scared me. But once I got past that, I could have the candy. So it was something that I would just tough through. Uh, it meant to me, it meant uncomfortable shoes that I wore twice a year. And so it depended if my family bought the new shoes for Christmas as a growing kid, by the time you get around to Easter, they're a little, you're, you've outgrown them, but we're not buying new shoes for you to wear twice a year, right? So you wedge your feet into them and it just was a, uncom- it was a thing to just get through so that I could have my Easter egg hunt and my candy. As a kid, that's what I thought of. And really, the days before and after didn't really have any significance. But today, a lot of adults, a lot of adult Christians see it as just another day. And maybe they have a bit more of an awareness of the significance of it. But a lot don't even go beyond that. Then you have the other the other segment of people who really, really do understand and grasp it. Some even celebrate the tradition of Lent. And last year, we kind of did a little bit of that. We're we're not doing so much on Lent this year. Lent officially, by the way, began back on February 17th. Lent is a series or a season of 40 days leading up to Easter. 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to Easter. It was first observed really in the first century. First century church, they did that. Now, it wasn't called Lent, and it wasn't really even formalized until the Council of Nicaea in like 325 AD. But in the early church, Lent began as this period of fasting, penitence, praying, preparing your heart for baptism, specifically for baptism and by new convert baptism. They prepared, again, prayer, repentance of sins, uh, almsgiving, simple living, um, self-denial, which is where the idea of giving something up for Lent comes from. And today, that's very much the same thing. But it's an idea of repentance, fasting, preparation. But we have taken, rather than just baptism, we really focus in on that Easter Sunday. It's a preparation of your heart. It's a time of self-examination, a time of reflection uh, as we come up to Easter. But it should also be, and here's, here's where I want to, maybe some of you haven't thought about it this way. It should also be a time preparing our hearts, preparing our spirits to do spiritual warfare. As it ramps up, especially to that weekend. That, that Easter Sunday that we all focus so much on. Now, here's, here's where I want to tie this in. I talk about Lent, and even though we're not really observing Lent formally here at Discover, the idea of, of Lent being a time of preparations for spiritual warfare is not something that I just pulled out of the, out of the sky. The 40 days of Lent you ever thought about it? Lent is 40 days, not counting Sundays. Why was it 40 days? Anybody know why 40 days of Lent? For, I'm sure somebody got it right, and good for you. But 
But the 40 days of Lent really is supposed to remind us of that 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert being tempted, right? After, after he was baptized, John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus walking down the street. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river. Jesus comes up. John the Baptist announces, this is Jesus, baptizes him. The sky parts, a dove comes down. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So anointed Jesus as your ministry is beginning right now. And then what's the very next thing that happens? Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts for 40 days. He prepares for 40 days to launch into his purpose for life. And along with that, at the very same moment, he begins to be tempted. That's if that's not a metaphor for our lives. When we're about to do something powerful for the Lord, temptation is going to follow right along with it. So the idea of spiritual warfare leading up to, that's, that's what it was about. Jesus was tempting. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those three anyway, all talk about this time of Jesus being tempted. And, and Luke, I believe it is, he, he talks about being tempted all the way through. Basically, from the beginning, he had these multiple temptations. Um, I wonder, though, let me show you the scripture. Matthew 4, this is from Matthew. Matthew 4, um, I put 1 through 11, but it's just 1 and 2, hopefully. Yeah, they put 1 through 11. It's just 1 and 2. Relax. (laughs) Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led into this temptation. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Okay, again, this is from Matthew, and Mark does the same thing. It makes it seem like it was 40 days, and then he became hungry. Okay, Luke talks about temptations being all the way through. And for me, about day one of a fast would be when I would start being tempted. But I read that and I think, did Satan think, if we go by what Matthew here says, did Satan think that as Jesus became hungry and became weak, that he would let down his guard and be more easily tempted? I think that's probably why he chose that time frame and that specific time to tempt him. But we know, you know, multiple temptations, if you want to read that account in, in Matthew uh, or any of the Gospels, go ahead. But he was tempted to make bread out of stones to relieve his own hunger. You're hungry? Turn these stones into bread and eat. He was tempted to jump from the roof of the temple and rely on angels to break his fall. And he was tempted, he was basically offered, worship Satan and receive all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan offered that to him. Worship me, and I'll offer you all the kingdoms of the world. So this, and we know Jesus was able to refute that, not only because he was God in the flesh, but he quoted Scripture on back. He, he knew it, and he was able to withstand that. But that's another message for another day. But we do know that the 40-day time frame of Lent that's typically looked at really is itself a clue as to the spiritual battles that Christians can expect all throughout life, but specifically as we get closer to Easter. Jesus had to contend with them, and we have to contend with them. So even if you don't really know that part of Christian history, and there's so much to talk about as we go into that, but even if you don't know that part, you probably know 
even non-Christians know that Easter is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Whether they believe it or not, they understand that that's what it is. You may even know that the idea of the resurrection of Jesus was in itself a victory over the schemes of the devil, over what the devil had planned, over death itself, a triumph of good over evil. We all have this. But have you ever thought about Easter, the resurrection of Christ, as the ultimate devastating, overwhelming, unstoppable, nuclear weapon, walls of Jericho falling down, supernatural victory of light over darkness. The victory of light over dark. And that's what this message, that's really what this series is going to be about. See, I'm so excited. I use my hands a lot when I get excited. I watch myself on video and I look like I'm cheerleading or something. Jazz hands. John 12, verse 46, Jesus says this, I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Jesus himself says, that's why I came as light into the world. So he came to save us from dark, not just offer us eternal life, not just offer us a home and a mansion with streets of gold, Many people take the gospel of Jesus and they just boil it down to that. It's my salvation. It's my, I'm reserving a room in heaven with streets of gold and everything I've ever wanted. We boil the gospel of Jesus down to just that, but there's so much more to it. And those are the other aspects that I really want to focus on. Because as humans, we all, every human being, I don't care where you are, we all have this innate favor, I guess, of light over darkness. We'd rather have it be light than dark, except maybe if we're sleeping. Okay, I get somebody out there is already going, but what about sleep? Okay, I get that. But mostly we favor light over the dark. All, in fact, all living things have this natural innate favor, this thirst for light over dark. I put a couple examples, butterflies, Butterflies. Butterflies just sitting there soaking in the sun. They spread their wings out to just soak in the warmth and the light of the sun. How about another one? Sunflowers. Have you ever noticed, have you ever driven by a field of sunflowers, like I'm talking a farmer's field, and notice that as the sun moves, all the sunflowers track the sun? It's this miraculous thing, and they just crave and they soak in the sun. That's why they're called Sunflowers, but even animals who live in the dark, who favor the dark, who hunt in the dark, who do their things in the dark, they have mechanisms for making the most of the light that they do get. And here's an example of that. You see it? I know it's hard to see. That's a lion. Their eyes adapt to low light because that's where they hunt. We've all seen fish, owls, and I would have pictures of those, but I couldn't find any good ones. So you can imagine in your mind, but they all adapt to the little light that they do get. And I'm sure you've noticed that darkness, darkness throughout our entire life has always kind of been associated with evil. Light with good, but darkness with evil. Does this ring ring true with anybody, this next slide? 
That's what we think of from, from the very first little children's books that we read. It's always images like this, right? Evil lurks in the dark. And that's always kind of been the way that it has been. You can take that down. But have you ever really thought about why? Ever really think about why is that? In fact, we know that light and dark are just natural cycles of the sun, right? It's dark at night. It's light during the day. It's just a natural thing. So why should we favor one over the other or fear one over the other? The definition of light, after all, is electromagnetic radiation that can be detected with the eye. That's really what it is. It's made up of these little particles of energy called photons. And I'm not going to get all Mr. Science on you, so that's as deep as we're going. I know, I know. But that's as deep as we're going into that. But that's, that's what light is. And darkness is typically just defined simply as the absence of light. Right? Pretty simple. I heard, uh-huh, good, from my, from my science group over here. So I know I'm on the right track. But the absence of photons and electromagnetic radiation shouldn't be particularly scary, right? It shouldn't be. So then why do, as humans, we just instinctively feel uneasy in the darkness? Why is that? I think it's the things that lurk in the darkness that we're afraid of. The things more so than that, the things that instinctively seek out the darkness to hide their intentions. I think that's what resonates with us. What's out there in the dark that has chosen to be in the dark? And for what reason has it chosen to be in the dark? That's kind of what concerns me all the time. Darkness can be scary. Think about noises. You hear the exact same. I'll give you an example. A lot of times I work very late nights here in the church, and it's just me. I turn off all the lights except for my office light just so that I'm saving energy. During the day, this building makes all kinds of creaks and pops and things as things are happening. At night, when it's just me and the lights are off and I hear a creak or a pop, I'm like, who's coming in the front door? <laughs> and I have to get up and go out and check. This, yeah. Yes. <laughs> the same exact noise during the day and the same exact noise during the night, one concerns us, one we don't even really register. Flipping on the light switch usually immediately takes care of all those things, right? Immediately. What do you do when you go into a child's room and they're afraid of the dark? The first thing you do, flip on the light. Look, see, nothing to be afraid of. It's just what we do. But there's a darkness, though, that is so much more destructive than imaginary monsters under the bed. In Scripture, it addresses darkness and light so much that it's really, I believe, something that we need to really grasp and really talk about, and that's what we're going to be doing. So in Scripture, darkness can mean a couple things. It either means simple ignorance, okay? You just don't know. I don't mean ignorance in a derogatory term. You just don't know. Simple ignorance or willful ignorance or willful blindness. You have made a choice. People are either lacking knowledge about God or they have rejected him outright, or sometimes both. Willful ignorance or a lack of knowledge produce similar results, and the result is a life of sin and bondage to it. King Solomon 
known, known as a, throughout history as a, as a wise man, right? King Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. He wrote this to his son Rehoboam, who grasped some of it, but not all of it. This is from Proverbs. I'll read this to you. Proverbs 4, 14 to 19. So just listen to this. This is advice to his son. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil people. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they're robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That last line, I love that. They don't know over what they stumble. Think about that. By refusing to walk in the light of God, they are doomed to constantly stumble, and many times they don't even know why. Have you ever seen somebody in life like that, somebody that you know, who just constantly stumbles and struggles? Now, struggling and stumbling is nothing whether you're Christian or whether you're not, but those people who don't know the Lord and have chosen, they just stumble, and sometimes they don't know why. And by stumble, like this, they cause other people to stumble. They do evil, and they don't even know why. In fact, they can't even sleep until they just instinctively do this. It's like something they have to get out. It's that darkness that they have to get out. Even their own body rejects that, but it comes out in a life of sin. Paul equated that idea of walking in darkness to slavery. He called it exactly like this, Romans 6, 20 to 23. I'll read this one to you also. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Okay, in other words, you didn't even know what you didn't know. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from these things of which you are now ashamed? Now that you know It's shameful to know what you used to live in. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about that very idea of before you knew, you operated in sin and you didn't really even know it. You didn't really understand it, but now that you do, there's kind of a shame that goes along with that. So then, going back to our original thing, it's not the lack of photons or visibly detectable radiation that we should fear. It's spiritual darkness. It's spiritual darkness. That's the true enemy, and our ignorance of it and of its effects is what leads to death. So as we... As we enter this series leading to Easter, we're going to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through this lens that Jesus is the light of the world come in the flesh to drive out darkness. In an old church, I'd get an amen for that. All right. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is where the, the scripture for our series title comes from. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
my question is, it says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. When did God say that? Any of my scholars out there? I heard the answer already, but give somebody else a chance. Anyone else? I shouldn't do this. This probably looks goofy on camera. And yet I just did it again. God said that in the beginning. Very good. Genesis 1, 1 through 4. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. We've got it on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Pretty famous. Everybody kind of knows that, right? And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness. Some say void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, that's the Hebrew word ruach, which means violent wind, was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, okay, verse 3, then God said, it's his first commandment, the first thing that God speaks into being here, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, So here we are. God is establishing not only the physical universe, but the laws and the things that govern the universe. And the first thing that he establishes, this order of the universe, with just the power of his word, is the dominion of light over dark. It's his first sovereign command. He's not relaying commands to a construction crew. He's not asking. He's declaring, let there be light. And there was light. Now, the nuance of that word, light, is lost. That Hebrew word, it means so much. In our our minds, light, this is a light. That's light. The sun gives light. It's, It's all, everything's light. But there are different nuances to it. And in the Hebrew, that word is just, is or, O R E, and it literally just means light, but there's so much subtlety to it. It can mean the light of day, the light of life, the light of instruction, the light of a lamp, the light of somebody's countenance, you're happy, your light, light of prosperity, the light of illumination or clarity. Now, illumination, we think of illumination as just being a light bulb, right? Light bulbs give illumination. But illumination really meant much more than that. It meant an awakening, an awareness, spiritually. That's what that word referred to then. It wasn't a substance so much as a condition or a state of being of things. So a permanent state of darkness was never God's intention. From the very beginning, he declared that. In fact, in the beginning, light was literally the firstborn of God's declarations. The first thing he said, let there be light. And we know that that Jesus Christ was the firstborn of God's promises for us. This is parallel of Jesus being the light. God established light over darkness by the power of his word. And we know that Jesus is called the word. God's plan was to bring light to a dark world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's word manifest. The Gospel of John says it like this. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, the very first thing John starts out with in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, there, the Word, he's talking about Jesus specifically, right? He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. 
And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. The light and the life of mankind was meant to be holy. When it says did not grasp it, that some say did not overcome it, did not overpower it, did not grab it. It was meant to be. The light and the life of Christ was meant to be set apart from the darkness and kept holy. That idea of being set apart is what the very word of holy means. The light was separated from darkness by God's design. Here's another scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's from Isaiah 52. In my translation, see they all caps. Those are things that, that tell you that that's an Old Testament scripture that's being quoted. That's from Isaiah 52. You can read that whole account uh, on your own. It's a, it's a great account. But he's, he's telling them, come out from that place of darkness and leave everything behind. Everything that is not holy, everything that is profane, all the idolatry, everything that you see everywhere, leave it behind. When I call you into this new thing, this new light that I'm creating, when I call you into that, leave the baggage behind because you won't need it and it shouldn't come with you. We see all throughout Bible history, ladies in the, in the ladies' Bible study will know every time people were warned to leave that stuff behind, at least half the time they didn't. They brought a little bit of it with them, thinking it'd be okay. And how much, how much are we just like that? We, th- we think that somehow through our own, through our own cunning, our own like, well, I know they can't handle it, but I could handle it. We all think that somehow we can take this beast of darkness and we can tame it and we can control it. We can put a leash on it and we can keep it in a room and we can hide it somehow and just bring it out when it benefits us. Gabe and I have gotten into watching Survivor lately. I know, I know. But in that, in that game, and it's just a game, but people will come out and go, I'm not really an evil, deceitful, lying person, but I'm using it for this game. There's so much more at stake than just a game. Church, our lives, our world is not like a game of Survivor. The stakes are so much higher. But for some reason, we continue to think that we can contain and control and use and hide this beast of darkness while at the very same time giving it access to our flock to do what he will. And we've been promised that he will devour. And yet somehow we continue to allow that darkness in our lives. This has been a problem since the very beginning. It's nothing new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. So I have a question for you again. Give people a chance to answer. I'm pointing at my Bible scholars here. After God created the heavens and the earth and all the creatures in it, what does he do next? Somebody said he creates Adam. Good job. He creates man. Creates man, Adam. After he creates man, then the very next thing he does, what's he do? He creates this beautiful garden. 
and puts the man in it. And he says, this garden will provide for everything that you need. You'll never need anything else. And there's just one rule. Who knows the just one rule? Genesis 2, 16, 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on that day you will eat from it, you will certainly die. Then what happens? The very next thing, he creates woman. He creates woman. He creates Eve, okay? And Eve comes in. Now, what happens next? Bible trivia for 300. Rob? You're not helping, Rob. What happens next? They ate the fruit. The one thing that they can't do. They didn't immediately die, though, did they? In fact, really, they didn't physically die, which to them, they're probably, okay, the snake told us we wouldn't certainly die, but God said we did, so now who do we trust? I didn't fall down dead. It's a spiritual death that was slow and agonizing. And that's the way it is. We don't immediately die. Many times when we let that beast of darkness into our lives and we see, it worked out okay that time. I hit it just fine. I controlled it just fine. Didn't hurt me. Didn't hurt anybody around me. In fact, nobody even knew. We're tempted then to think, I got this. Other people can't handle it. I can. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. But it is a slow, slow, agonizing spiritual death. So you're right, Rob. We do, we do die. It just takes a while. And the fact that there's a while in between makes us think, hey, maybe, it, maybe I'm the one that's going to escape this. But somehow I'm different. So the original sin, if we go back to that original sin, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was that original sin, right? Disobedience, more than anything, was the original sin. But the knowledge of, knowledge of the difference between good and evil, that was the consequence more than anything. That was the consequence of that original disobedience. Ultimately, we know that they were banished from paradise. So they're banished from paradise Things change. For the rest of mankind's life on earth here, things changed with that one choice that they made. And they didn't have, here's what they had. They had this knowledge without the infilling of the Holy Spirit to help them navigate and use that knowledge. So now all of a sudden they thought, okay, whereas I was kind of oblivious to good and evil and anything else before, I was just living my life. Now, all of a sudden, I have these ideas of what is good and what is evil, and I declare myself judge. And we see that fruit. It happens almost immediately. And we see that happen today. Our sinful nature and this knowledge of what's right and wrong lets us decide. We think we can decide what's good and what's evil. And in many cases, we can. If it lines up with Scripture, we can make that determination through the Holy Spirit in us, but we use that so many times and we struggle with it. We struggle to make those kinds of judgments without sinning. It's hard to do. 
back then at this time, again, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about Adam and Eve here. They had the law written on their hearts from the very beginning, but that stood very little chance against that temptation. So here's an example of how that works. After being banished from the garden, Adam and Eve have children. Natural cycle of things. They have children. Anybody know what the names of their first two children are? Cain and Abel. So good. I'm so proud of you. What's the first thing that happens there in that dynamic? Cain gets jealous and kills his brother Abel. I would argue that it's Cain's sense of fairness, of right and wrong. His saying, like, why does he get favor and I don't? I offered the best I could just like he did. And it's that sense of self-righteousness and that judgment, like, it's not fair without the Holy Spirit to really deal with that. It bubbles up in him, and it lashes out then in anger, and he kills his brother. Generations of mayhem ensued from that one action. Humans have always fought this losing battle. For the most part, it's a losing battle with their fleshly nature. And they have, for thousands of years, having a portion of knowledge without the wisdom to apply it without sin. That's so hard to do. And that's what the light of Christ does for us. The light of Christ shines wisdom, shines love, brings who he is into that equation and should, in our hearts, triumph over darkness. That's how it should work. He came in the flesh to offer salvation. Yes, to reconcile us with the Father God. Yes, to heal the sick and afflicted. Yes, to overcome the schemes of the Satan of the Satan, the accuser. Satan, the accuser. To pour out his spirit on mankind and to be the light in a world desperately in need. Desperately in need. John 12, 44 to 46. Jesus himself says this. Jesus cried out. Now this is, he's preparing to go and meet his fate. He's getting ready spiritually, he's getting ready, trying to make his disciples understand what's about to happen to go step into his fate. Now Jesus cried out and said, the one who believes in me does not believe only in me, but also in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Jesus himself said, that's why he came into the world. Salvation, eternal life, healing, power over the schemes of the enemy. These are all wonderful things that were brought through that. But he himself said, I came as light so that you wouldn't have to live in darkness. The light of Jesus and his triumph over darkness was and is a beautiful blessing to the entire universe. By the light of Christ, all things became visible. There's a quote I love. C.S. Lewis is amazing. And I've quoted this before, but I'm going to do it again. C.S. Lewis said this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Through that light of Jesus, our eyes are open to see things 
that we would never otherwise be able to see. And through that offer of salvation in Jesus, we have the choice. That's what salvation in Christ is about. We have a choice. Are you going to choose to either willfully remain in the darkness? Because now that you know, you know. Now that the offer's out there, you know. So it's no longer just simple ignorance like, I never, I never heard I had the choice. You have the choice, and it's a choice that you have to make. No one can make it for you. You make the choice. Am I going to walk in the light or remain in the darkness? There's really no middle ground. You can't be on the fringe of light. It's either total darkness or it's light. And we can't and we should not move back and forth. Make no mistake, we, we are not to blend in with the darkness. Or worse yet, to pridefully try and control it somehow. Only Jesus can do that. And really what it boils down to is this. We are to share the gospel message of Christ and let him bring the light into a world that desperately needs it. You think the world is out of control? You think things seem like they're spiraling, like accelerating down the hill at breakneck speed? You're right. And the way to stop that is to bring the light of Christ into this world. If you think the world is not desperately in need, you're either living in simple ignorance or willful blindness. And church, there is no in-between. You're either lacking sufficient understanding about God or you have rejected him or both. And either one, again, produced similar results. It's a life of sin and bondage to it. Prophet Isaiah said this. We're almost, we're almost finished here, worship team. The prophet Isaiah promised this to those living in a dark land. You think we live in a dark land today? Whether it's our nation or our world, there's a lot of darkness out there. But Isaiah promised that those who live in a dark land will be blessed through those who carry the light of Christ. Listen to this, Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest and as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. He's talking about here, Christ will shine the light and that light will be reflected through them. And through that, bless a nation that needs it, a world that needs it. So the very last scripture, very last scripture I want to share with you, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus Christ speaking these words. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, there's no in-between. We either keep our light if you know Jesus Christ, if you've called him your Lord and Savior, you have the light of Christ. Are you going to just hide it? Or are you going to put it out there for all to see and let that light reflect through you? It's a choice we have to make. We can be the light for the glory of God or we can willfully remain in the darkness. Church, there is no in-between. 
Let's pray. Father God, we come to you with just grateful hearts. We lift our spirits up to you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus into the world to be the light, to not only expose darkness, but to drive it out. So, Lord, we just pray that you use us. Use us as instruments to reflect that pure light of Christ and let us not dirty that up by trying to hide darkness in our lives. Lord, we give that over to you. Shine that light. Shine that light. I'm reminded of these UV lights that people have out there now to try and kill this COVID virus. You see them all over the place, these bright UV lights. But that's that light of Christ that shines on darkness, shines on evil, and will absolutely destroy it. But we need to not keep bringing it back into our lives. Father, help us to see those places of darkness in our lives and bring your light into them. Help us bring the light to the world and the knowledge of who Jesus is. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, um, Pastor Gabe alluded to it. We have a board over here. It says, Jesus is. We're gonna keep that all up through the Easter season. And if you're here in-house, there's no rules on how you have to do it. We have a little thing of markers right there next to the candles. Grab one of those, go over there. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart as we worship, as we celebrate communion, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Let it be something that encourages those around and just go write it on there. Or you could do, you could write, do hearts or some kind of artwork. Whatever Jesus means to you, take some time and go do that. If you're out there online, if you're watching, whatever, message us. Do it in the chat boards, wherever you are. Just give us a little message and let us know who Jesus is to you. And we'll go and we'll put it on the board for you. And by that, we can encourage one another on who Jesus Christ is. So we also, we're gonna prepare for communion right now. If you're at home, grab your supplies. If you're here in house, we have them at the table in the back. If you didn't grab them, some new people here to the church who don't know to grab them ahead of time. Sorry, Gabe, I'm making fun of you. She gets out of the habit. She actually got to join us through service today. Normally she's in doing the chat boards. We have uh, Scott and Kelly Hazlett man in the chat boards today. So have a virtual wave out to them. Thank you guys for doing that. Gives Gabe a chance to, to be in here for service. But let's celebrate communion together. And as we do this, again, right on the board, we have prayer team in the back. Maybe you need somebody just to pray with you. Maybe you're having a hard time identifying that darkness or worse yet, you've identified it and you can't let go somehow. We have prayer team in the back where they've got lanyards on. Look for them who will help you pray that through. Get rid of that. Anything you need prayer for, prayer is powerful. Use them. But let's take communion together. So grab your supplies. In the beginning, first thing God said, spoke into the void, let there be light. It's the first thing he said. And God saw that the light was good. But over time, that light has become dim. And at times it looks like it's threatening to be overcome by the darkness. But Jesus came to be that light. Our hearts have become accustomed to darkness in so many ways. Darkness is less offensive to us now than it should be. 
We should be offended by that dark in our lives, but we become adapted to it. That God has heard our prayers. And God has sent his son Jesus as the light into the world to overcome darkness. That's why we celebrate communion here. We celebrate that when we take the body, when we take the body of Christ, we are sealing our oneness with Christ. We are sealing our allegiance to the one by partaking of his body, his body broken for you. Take the body. The blood of Christ was shed as the atonement for our sins once and for all. And by that, we no longer have to walk in the darkness. We no longer have to listen to the lies of the enemy saying, there's darkness in you. Why don't you just hide? Through the atoning blood of Jesus, we can walk boldly in the light and reflect that light as we should. Take the blood. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.